1: to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use.
2: Today's cool fact of the day is that there's a reason that you sneeze when you go outside into bright sunlight sometimes. And it's probably not what you think. It's because we're hardwired at a very low level so that when we're exposed to really bright light, we do that to clear our passages because the first time you're ever exposed to really bright light is right after you're born when you're full of, well, mucus. So the reflex is to sneeze to clear your breathing passages and we carry that with us throughout life. So when you go from that dim conference room into that bright sunlight to get the healthy amounts of ultraviolet light that our bodies need from natural sunlight, If you sneeze, it's okay. Just celebrate and thank your mom.
1: What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. For a seven-day free trial.
2: Today's guest is a, a really powerful researcher and influential voice in the world of, of high-fat nutrition, and someone who uh, has worked extensively with the LA Lakers to the extent that Kobe Bryant says that he trusts her implicitly, and he's seen great results when he started doing her program last year. And uh, that's uh, pretty, pretty cool stuff, but that's, that's one thing. The, the most uh, important thing behind that is that uh, today's guest, who is Dr. Kate Shanahan, by the way, is a board-certified family physician who also trained in biochemistry and genetics at Cornell, and then attended Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, went on to study ethnobotany in Hawaii and looking at culinary habits of her healthiest patients. And she's written a book called Deep Nutrition, which is really worth your time to read, so it's in the, the quadrant of the, the nutritional map where you'll find things like Weston A. Price, like Paleo, Primal, uh, Bulletproof, Whole30, uh, Whole, whole 30, uh, all, all of those sorts of things where we're like, eat lots of real food, and there's variations between each of those things. And some of them came from ancestral stuff, some didn't. Like Bulletproof is biochemistry-derived, not derived. But we all end up in the same part of the map, whether or not we're in different neighborhoods is, is a different thing, but none of us ended up at the low-fat kind of thing. So that's Dr. Kate's bias that she'll tell you, well, after many years and all this studying that goes beyond normal medical school, uh, here's what I found, and here's what works for these really tall guys who run around and kick everyone's ass. So <laughs> like, hey, let's, let's do that. So Dr. Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me on again. Now, I first heard about you a few years ago because I saw this article, I think it was in the LA Times, that said, the LA Lakers are drinking bulletproof coffee. And I'm like, wow, this is really cool. So we've had a chance to email back and forth and chat a couple times. And you really did change a lot of what America was willing to pay attention to. Because when a whole team is getting really good results and they're eating not McDonald's and and you know Gatorade and, and stuff like that, and switching to we eat real food and tons of vegetables. And you see these like sports heroes do that. It really makes it a, a safe or a manly thing to do, uh, or or at least a sane thing to do <laughs> for for most of the country. So thank you for for just getting it out there in that way.
3: Oh yeah, you know we did it because we wanted to uh, kind of promote. Well, I mean, obviously we wanted to help the Lakers, of course. Um, and our big pitch was that it would help recovery from injury. Um, it also gives them more energy, which they really appreciate. But we, we kind of gave a fuddy duddy pitch, right? Like it wasn't like, this is the latest, greatest new thing. It was like, this is just what everyone used to do. And we've come so far from that. We scientifically kind of analyzed why it would be good to get back to that and what exactly that was that we used to do. Mm -hmm. But I think it was, um, you know, that it's, it's hard to overstate how, just how cautious these billion dollar franchises are with what they do with their diet they they literally hadn't changed anything in over like roughly 30 years um you know just because there was no obviously compelling reason for the head trainer to to change away from what was really the standard american approach at that point in time because there, he had not really encountered uh, 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 enough science to kind of say, okay, well, I know there's this massive wall and ivory towers full of evidence that you should do low fat and, uh, sugar is the perfect fuel for athletes. But, um, there hadn't just been like anything really that had convinced him that there was another way to do things that might be better. And, um, Gary Vitti, who was the head trainer at the time, um, is the, was our like connection that got us in there. And he's a foodie. So it really made a lot of sense to him when we said that chefs are the original nutritionist because he'd always had the personal experience of just thinking about getting the the freshest food from the best source and cooking it simply to bring out the flavor. And then he was happy to hear that it also enhances the nutrition. And so that's kind of the approach that we take to try to just make it uh, clear that, you know a healthy diet is also a delicious diet.
2: There's been this weird division in in cooking and food. We have things like molecular gastronomy that the the former and original CTO of Microsoft is one of the pioneers of where you use these advanced molecular biology and biochemistry techniques to to make food that's in interesting new things and and the most famous recipe that came out of that school of thinking is probably french fries that are perfect. They're only cooked four times, always in bad oils. (laughs) But they taste amazing, right? And and when your view of the world is, how's it going to taste, you end up making like Pop-Tarts and all sorts of weird stuff that aren't really biologically compatible. But when your perspective is, how are you going to feel after you eat this? And then how do I make it taste good? People, It's a different kind of taste. It's like a food high that comes from it. And I think many people have never experienced food that's so fresh and so clean and so good and so well composed that when they eat it, they're like, I don't know why I have all this energy, but like, I have to do something good.
3: Exactly. You know, I think you're totally right because you don't really know. I like to tell people that you don't really even know who you are until you get your brain more used to burning not to burning fat and also where it's it has to really be rebuilt because if you've been following a standard american diet the fats that uh, you had been eating are what your brain is made out of and those are all very prone to oxidation and um uh, just the function is not going to be where it needs to be so it takes a couple of months in most cases like 6 months before we really realize Wow, I feel like it's been a long time since I've been really hungry. I've, it's been a long time since I've had brain fog. I feel like my brain is on now. Yeah, like all day.
2: <laughs> I In my mind somewhere, I have a reference that says it takes 900 days to replace 75% of the cell membranes in your body. These are cell membranes made out of fat. So if someone goes on your program, someone just starts adding egg yolks and butter and grass-fed animal fats to their diet, it can take a couple of years before, like really, they get functional membranes. How important are the, the outer cell membrane and the, the mitochondrial membrane? Like, Can you talk about that from a, a biochemistry perspective for listeners? Yeah.
3: You, what your body is made, there's nothing more important than what your body is made out of.
2: Yeah. And
3: w- one of the reasons that, um, natural fats are so important, particularly for brain function, is that your brain is made out of 50% fat by dry weight. And mm-hmm. if those fats are, uh, not natural, and I should define what I mean by unnatural fats, um, but if they're, if they're not natural, your body still has to, use them to do its very best to build a brain. And it's kind of like uh, you are at a construction site with your uh, contractor and um, the contractor's like, well, we, I know you wanted your house made out of bricks, uh, but those never showed up. We did get these styrofoam balls. <laughs> um, we got to get the show on the road here. So uh, let's just go for it. See what happens. And it's, you know, the body does its bet its very best with the equipment that it has on hand, but it's not going to perform at its very best. So there, there's actually, there's a probably a movie that's coming out maybe in the next few months. Um, the title is in flux. So I can't uh, tell you the title right yet, but um, there's a scene in there that is so moving. They have a family that has an autistic child who's five years old and at the start of the movie, she's nonverbal. She doesn't use like utensils to eat with. And in two weeks of getting these nasty fats out of her diet and getting real foods in her diet, she starts using language. Uh She she starts saying no when she doesn't want something and she starts using a fork. And by five weeks, she's suddenly acting like like a normal-ish child. Now, unfortunately, she's acting almost like a normal two-year-old child because her brain development was so delayed, but at least we're getting to the point where you can make that human connection. And it's just such a, such a moving thing because the transformation is really amazing. And it just takes five weeks just to get started. Right. And you need to, it's, it it may take, you know, a full two years, three years, children are growing. So it would probably be a lot faster, but, um, it's just so great to be able to get some of that positive, you know, feedback right away because it is very hard to change a child's eating habits. I mean, it's hard enough to change your own, but to change a child, you have temper tantrums and you have to you have to be firm. And uh, this man was up to the task. It was the the father who was in the movie Then they show him that it, for for five days, she just basically didn't eat. Yeah. And it was torture for him. But um, uh, eventually she gave in and she just – it's like something snapped and she just started eating and it was it was good.
2: <laughs> the, the fasting might even have been a good thing to do. <laughs>
3: totally good point. You know, I hadn't thought of that.
2: <laughs> my, my kids, they're seven and nine now, but they eat Bulletproof and, and they, they like it and they, they don't hold resentment about it. But both of them at least one time have said, I'm not going to eat that. And, and it's like, oh, okay, you want to try fasting? Awesome. We can go 30 days without food. So we'll just put that food away right now and you'll be totally fine. We don't have snacks when we're fasting. And then their eyes get really big and they're like, 30 days, give me the food. And there's never a problem. That's a
3: great tactic. You ought to, uh, you know, do a little... Uh, biohacking family life. <laughs> biohacking.
2: I think there's a post about it. The post is called, like, eat your damn broccoli. I think that's what the post is called. And it's like hunger and gravity are really good teachers for kids. It's like if you do that, you'll fall. And as long as you, they're not going to hit their head and get a TBI, traumatic brain injury, uh, then like, okay, I, you were warned. And after a little while, they're like, I think I'll start paying attention here. Either that or they don't fall and they feel good about it. So who knows? Well, you know, like,
3: you're, you're so right. Like, <laughs> hunger is a great teacher. If for us yeah. and for uh, for children, too, because hunger puts you much more in tune with your uh, natural appetites. Right. And and it does kind of reset a lot of these appetite regulating hormones that um, if you're eating all the time, especially you know in this culture, it's amazing. People feel like it's dangerous to be um, hungry or that if you eat more frequently, it'll speed up your metabolism or that if you are hungry, it's a sign of a fast metabolism, all of those things are not correct. And um actually, it's much no- more normal to go for much, you know, with these extended periods of time without eating. And you really very often if you I mean, if you don't, if you get away from this, uh I need to eat every few hours, your body gets very good at dipping into the fat stores, which helps you burn fat and produce ketones. And then you don't, really feel hunger but you do truly appreciate food when you get it because you don't have all these weird chemicals and artificial cravings driving your your hunger
2: it's totally true for adults and, and i don't think fasting is really that good for kids uh, for the vast majority for a long time. of time yeah, anyway. yeah, right, yeah like, right like there are good reasons and, and kids need some carbs too at least most of them like they, they benefit, like the right carbs and not a lot of them and not sugar and all. So I, I don't want to encourage people to Absolutely. put their kids in the past. <laughs> I realize that, 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 could be a, that could be a side effect of this conversation that's unintended. So uh, if you're listening and you're thinking, great, I, I just want to feed my kids breakfast, no. But I I do have to say that hunger is a great teacher, uh, or to reiterate that, because If you're hungry two hours after you ate, it just tells you this one thing, you did it wrong. Like, like your hunger is your fault, and it's because you ate something that you're sensitive to, or you didn't eat enough fat. Uh, So I I do that with the kids. They get a little espresso cup, like one or two ounces of Bulletproof coffee, with Brain Octane that raises ketones, which suppresses hunger hormones. So they're fine to go through to to, to lunch, but some of their classmates, uh, they're at a Waldorf school, and there's a few vegans who get like a green apple for breakfast. And then the kids come in, and like you know, by 10 o'clock, they're shaking, and it's time to have a snack. So then the whole class stops, and they all sit down, and they have their little snack. And it's like, what a waste of time. Like, Could we all just feed our kids enough that they could stay focused for more than 45 <laughs> minutes?
3: Uh, Absolutely.
2: I hope that, that that reaches, like your work reaches school lunches as well. And honestly, getting there through the, the Lakers and some of the other sports teams is probably a faster way to school lunches. Uh, than than the things I've done, where I've I, I've gone to Phoenix, I've spoken at the most obese school district in the country uh, about like what can we do for our kids, and it, it's it's kind of scary. What what would you say to a parent of a kid uh, based on all of the the work that you've done? Like what should they feed their kids? Like like what kind of fats are good? What what how much fat should they get? How much vegetables? Like like kind of break it down.
3: Yeah. So the beautiful thing about the way nature arranges everything is that. Nature does truly try to make it very simple for us. So, what's good for children in terms of what kinds of foods um, is very much the same as what's good for adults. And um, this is this is what we break down in our book, Deep Nutrition. We we actually um have analyzed all culinary traditions uh to look for what do they all have in common? And our reasoning there was. Uh, that if there was something that all all cultures do that's the same, it's probably extremely important. Um, and it turned out that there were actually four practices that all cultures that uh, I guess I could uh, qualify that by saying primary cultures or traditional cultures where they have not been altered by um, processed food and fast food and stuff like this, uh, there's, there's four practices that all cultures, um, engaged in. And, um, and this is true whether you lived in Alaska or Hawaii or France or Japan. Um, and, uh, that is kind of like the centerpiece of, of the argument that we make in our book is that these four practices are what uh, the, the constitutes essentially a human diet. And, it's very easy to adapt them to any cuisine because they they come from all cuisines. Um, so I, I can just list them real quickly. Sure. Those are they're fresh foods, meaning um, you know seasonal and not cooked um, and certainly not processed. So like fresh vegetables, but also f- like animal products that haven't been cooked. So sushi is a really great example of a traditional fresh food. Milk traditionally has not been pasteurized or homogenized, Uh Um, fermented and sprouted foods, because when you have a lot of fresh food at the end of the growing season, you need to preserve it. And before canning and freezing, you had to work with nature. So fermentation was the way of doing that and sprouting is what happens at the other end of the season when you've stored seeds or, or nuts or something for a long period of time. You can soak them in water and partially germinate them so that their enzymes wake up and it increases the nutritional value of the seed or the nut or whatever it is. And then there's um, meat on the bone, which is going to give you the benefits of collagen and glycosaminoglycans, right? right? Um, and uh, so... Like Thanksgiving dinner, we save the turkey carcass, make turkey carcass soup. It's a very uh one of the few surviving uh traditional practices in this country where we we actually get that stuff. And then the last one, the fourth pillar is everybody's favorite, the organ meats.
2: Yum. (laughs) Stuff a liver in that turkey. You'll have leftovers.
3: (laughs) Exactly. So so this is one, this is kind of like the first one that fell by the wayside because it, it 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 does depend on being fresh. Organ meats are uh, very high in nutrition, and a lot of the fats that compose them are um, very susceptible to oxidation, so they go back quickly. And then
2: also, Ooh. they're an acquired taste. You have to cook them. I right? have a question. I have a question for you there. So I I've been a huge fan of liver as like the nature's original B vitamin supplement. That there's actually the right forms of B vitamin. The problem is that, well, it doesn't taste very good, but I've done raw lamb liver (laughs) smoothies with like, like it was absolutely horrifying. Like one of the worst foods I've ever had. Uh, But I drank it anyway. And I had to throw the (laughs) the blender away when I was done. It was that bad. But good thing it was a cheap blender. So that way I know I'm getting unoxidized fats. But the way I prefer to take my liver is in little desiccated powder capsules. But I've always been concerned that when you powder liver, all of the fats are exposed to oxygen and you may be damaging those liver fats that are actually very unusual forms of fats that are found almost nowhere else in the body. Uh, what's your take? Should I be doing my dry liver capsule powder things? I, I am. I, I do it because I know that B vitamins are in there and I assume that if I'm getting oxidized fats. But am I doing the right thing?
3: Um, yeah. So it, it is primarily the benefit there is going to be the uh, the B vitamins because those are not Significantly damaged by the process of dehydration. Now, what happens when you dehydrate the whole liver is going to be different depending on the source of the liver and exactly details of how that liver was dehydrated. Um, so it's it's hard to say really, but in general, the fact that it's whole liver and and not like an extract um, is good because that means that there's no way that they are removing any of the antioxidants that would be protecting those fats. You can get it tested. Um, and, um, there's a, uh, a gentleman that works at UC Davis that, uh, has been doing these tests and they're working on how to, uh, make it more, make it more faster so that it can be a commercially available test. But, one of the most important tests for your health and for your food's health is for the presence of oxidized polyunsaturated fats, and and this is what they can test for. It's like a a, a rapid, um, it's like mass spectrometry, spectrometry, and chromatography, and uh, wow. high tech sequence of. <laughs>
2: How do I get in <laughs> touch with this guy? Because I I would run. I, I'm always formulating new foods and supplements, and I I would actually love to get some some hardcore data this way
3: is this a publicly
2: available test or you need to like call a guy in a lab somewhere yeah
3: more that um but um he's an awesome guy and um you know i've sort of talked to him about like i know people that would really um love to help maybe publicize your work because he's doing very important work but um people aren't hearing about it right because it's a high-tech topic
2: Well, maybe I should just have him on the show. Yeah, um, because it, that would be interesting. I, this is a conversation that I wanted to go into the, into with you because you have an unusual background. You're a medical doctor, which means you have like one one perspective on things, but also you studied biochemistry, which a lot of doctors didn't. So you can put on different lenses depending on how you're looking at a problem, which I I always find makes like this cross-functional stuff always makes the really coolest conversations and usually the best uh, programs because you're just thinking about things in an odd way instead of in group think. (laughs) Uh, An odd is a compliment, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) It is not average. Going from Dave. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Now, when you're looking at, at something like these oxidized fats, The anti-aging crowd who I've hung with for many years, that crowd almost universally, if you said how much omega-3 versus uh, uh, omega-6 fat should you have in your cell membranes, they're going to tell you four omega-6s for one omega-3. The four to one ratio is like locked in anti-aging lore. Is that the right ratio? (laughs) Like That's still four times more polyunsaturates than uh, omega-3s or at least omega-6s than omega-3s. Are they wrong?
3: Um, So are they talking? You you said in the membranes, right? You did not say in the diet,
2: correct? Oh, not in the diet. This is what you get when you measure. Usually, it's in red blood cells is where they're measuring this. And there's a group of people who say you have too much membrane fluidity. It's probably not good for you. I was getting nosebleeds at the time, which Eskimos have from eating too much omega threes, and. The most diehard bulletproofers, some of them are getting their ratios down to that level. I figure most people can't avoid polyunsaturated fat. They can't avoid omega-6s unless you just are kind of obsessive about it. So where do you fall? Because you've, you've really dug in on this. Where do you fall on the optimal amount? Because we've got to have some omega-6 in our diet. Because I know I've tried to eliminate all of it. It's really hard to do.
3: So you brought up two uh, different different, and very important points. So um, I'm glad you mentioned that um, they're... Talking about membrane fluidity. Okay, so our brain is pretty much one on to one on omega six to omega three. So, uh, oh, cool. Yeah, I mentioned earlier that fifty percent of our brain by dry weight is um, fat, right. and thirty percent of of your brain by dry weight is poofas, and it's half and half omega six and omega three, and so I kind of think that that is probably a good marker for perhaps what our red blood cells ought to contain. Although it's not entirely uh, clear how important it is that our red blood cells have Mm -hmm. the same ratio as our brain. So, let me just back up and explain a little bit about that membrane fluidity and why it's sure. so important that our brains do get this omega, um, the polyunsaturates, whether both omega six and omega three. So our brain cells communicate with each other, with each other, um, through little packets of information called neurotransmitters. And they touch each other physically or almost actually in, uh, structures called synapses. So, this is one brain cell talking to another brain cell. And in between my hands is the synapse. And what happens is when um, the electrical impulse travels down the end of one brain cell and it's strong enough to say, okay, we're going to make the leap to the next brain cell. um, Then the way that actually physically makes the leap is because the neurotransmitters have to be released into the synaptic Mm cleft, and they're they, tr- they are released in not, not freely released. They're released in these little bubbles. They're like little water balloons that have neurotransmitters inside them. And the balloon is made out of the fatty acids. And that has to happen repeatedly and extremely rapidly. And so it has to be a very fluid and flexible membrane so that it can basically a little bubble can bleb off and then fuse And so it can't be highly saturated. Saturated fats are more solid and they're stiffer physically. So it's this physical property of flexibility and fluidity that is dictating the um, requirements of our brain for polyunsaturated fatty acids. And that's why there's so many in there. Now, both omega-6 and omega-3 are very flexible. You could say that omega 3 because it ha- has um, more, I know the number's lower. Uh, The omega-6 and the omega-3 refer to the position of the first double bond, not the amount of double bonds in there. So polyunsaturated means it has a double bond for those uh, chemistry buffs out there who've heard those terms and want to understand why omega-6 actually has fewer double bonds than omega-3 with a lower number. The omega does not refer to how many double bonds there are. Um, So the omega-3s actually tend to have more double bonds and are maybe just a little bit more fluid. But um, they're both super important to maintain that flexibility. And um, they, they also have other functions that we're, that we talk about in, t- in the rest of the body, not so much in the brain, but in the rest of the body, the omega-6 and the omega3 have very different functions uh, when they are enzymatically converted into, Signals and these are the pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory chemicals that we've heard of, which is um, one of the reasons that uh, one of the confusion points around polyunsaturated fats. A lot of folks say that uh, omega six is bad because omega six is a precursor for pro-inflammatory, and that's why polyunsaturates are are uh, potentially unhealthy in the diet if you have too many, but. That's an issue, but it's not the, the thing that I focus on. So to get to the question of what is the ratio? Well, um, that we would have to look to animals. I think we would have to look to, Mm -hmm. because animals are really our best model for what is a natural diet going to do. And, um, I'm not an animal physiologist, but, um, uh, you know, you have to take a free living animal consuming its natural diet. So whether it's a cow or, you know, consuming grass or I guess cows aren't really free living, it'd be even better to get like a caribou.
2: Maybe or, you've or got, like a pig. might yeah, be best. Like, a wild of, pig.
3: Yeah. yeah. Be, well, because they're similar because they're omnivores. Right. right. Um, exactly. So, yeah. And, um, I believe distant memories is very faint that, you know, animals have a much closer to one to one ratio. Um, and
2: of of omega-3 to omega-6 so they're eating more omega-3s and less omega-6s than than we are the average not the average but many americans and this could be an average are 40 omega-6s to one omega-3 which is shocking like that's a junk food diet for sure it's very hard to achieve the four to one ratio and to go below it i don't know if if it's if it's beneficial i've seen some people looking at cell membrane composition who are saying, by the way, people listening are either like super excited by this or like, Dave just said soul membrane composition. That's so boring. <laughs> anyway, stick with me for a minute here uh, uh, if you're listening to this, because there is a point that, that you can take something home for. Uh, and they found that there were people who were taking way too much omega 3s to, to try and affect this ratio. In other words, instead of eating less omega 6s, they tried to eat more omega 3s in the form of supplemental fish oil, and they were damaging their cell membranes. They were getting highly oxidized cell membranes because if you have a lot of omega-3 and omega-6, uh, those are the fats that get more damaged. They get more damaged before you eat them, and they probably get more damaged in the body. So um, I, I'm a little concerned. There's a few people out there in biohacking circles who are like, you know, only eat fish, only have fish oil. And when you look at like the real studies around what happens if you have too much omega-3s, I'm kind of worried about that. Should I be worried? Is this a question of eating less omega-6s or eating more omega-3s?
3: It's a little bit of both. Um, so yeah. uh, the omega-6s come from the vegetable oils primarily. The, the soy uh, oil and the canola oil are the uh, two oils that are responsible for the most of all of the poofas that we get, that the average American gets. And we get an incredible amount. I, I did a calculation for deep nutrition, and it turns out that somewhere between 30 and 50, maybe 60 even percent of the average American's diet is composed of these vegetable oils. And wow. these vegetable oils are industrial foods. They, they did not exist before the industrial era. And because of their chemical makeup, they are, they're, I mean, it's going to sound a little extreme, but they, I, I feel like we should be calling them liquid death because <laughs> <laughs> they are chemically unstable, like you mentioned. And, um, they promote instability of our own bodies, um, polyunsaturates because of something called free radical cascades. And, um, when you have that many in your diet, we have far more now in our diet than ever before in history. We're consuming a thousand times more soy oil than we were um, uh, at the turn uh, in the 1900s, in the early 1900s, a thousand times more. Canola oil, the second uh, biggest source of uh, vegetable oils in this country, it didn't exist. I mean, in in America, we didn't have any until 1985 when they approved it for, for use. Uh, just to show you that it is a sort of a newfangled thing. It had to be like approved the way a drug would have to be approved. Uh, not exactly the same way, but very similar process. Um So we are, uh, the average American now is composed of far more polyunsaturated fat than ever before in history. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that when you biopsy, human fat tissue. It's composed of a more liquidy kind of fat that is more prone to degradation and inflammation than 50 years ago or than normal. And so one of the consequences of this is cellulite. We can actually see what happens when our fat is more liquid and more inflammatory. And I'm going to show you a little picture here from Deep Nutrition because I modeled cellulite. So if you can see that oh, cool. there. Um, on uh, the, the the picture here, this is a normal layer of fat, and this is cellulite fat. Is it coming through okay?
2: It is. And for people listening, not watching on the YouTube channel, by the way, uh, uh, bulletproofexec.com slash YouTube will get you to the channel. Uh, what we're seeing is we're seeing two pictures. One of them has a bunch of like tightly clustered small droplets of fat in your skin. The other one has larger droplets that are more spread out.
3: And they also, what these these dark lines here, the the normal fat has more of these dark lines, which represents the collagen that helps keep the fat organized, and that organization enables your skin to stay smooth um and not dimple like when you pinch it. And so I, ha, you know, cellulite, we kind of assume is an issue when you're overweight, but I, I have actually seen babies like three, four months old that are weaned on this vegetable oil stuff or they're fed it there because baby formula is largely composed of canola oil and these vegetable oils and you can pinch their little tummies. And instead of just, you know, nice, smooth, delightfully buttery baby fat that you're feeling it starts to dimple in the way that cellulite does and it's because that inflammation is breaking down the supporting collagen structure so instead of having um so that cellulite fat instead of having three layers of collagen support has only two layers of collagen support so that's in one dimension and um, in another dimension, there's up and down supports as well. and cellulite fat has fewer of those collagen supports as well. So it's it's much more flimsy, and that's why it dimples. And um, that flimsiness is a direct reflection of how the inflammation like erodes away the collagen.
2: So, so if, if someone was to switch to eating more stable fats, which would include some saturated fats, uh, would definitely include undamaged omega-3 oils and, say, eat a lot more collagen. Yes, people listening know I manufacture uh, grass-fed collagen and all that kind of stuff. So subtle product plug, people. Um, but uh, <laughs> if someone was was to do that, what what happens with cellulite over time?
3: So... The good news and there's good news and there's bad news. So this right. is the way nature works. It's like, well, you kind of gotta pay for the mistakes you made, but we can help you out a little bit moving forward, right? So the mistakes you made category is that uh there's a very special kind of collagen called um uh, fi- uh starts with an F. Um, it's very flexible and it'll come to me in a second. And uh, the name doesn't really matter, but we uh it's responsible for elastin, that's what it's called. It's responsible oh, elastin. Okay, for cool. it. it's I respons- know that one. <laughs> yeah, it's responsible for the bounce in our skin. Why, you know, when we stretch it it bounces back and it doesn't wrinkle when we pinch it. Uh, we only get a certain amount of that in our lifetime. In fact, the amount that we get and the durability of this elastin determines the lifespan of the species. So it's very important molecule to longevity and quality of life as you age. But um, your body does only manufactures it under very specific conditions. And it includes a lot of hormones. And we just don't have all those hormones at, long after puberty. So you're kind of like if you've if, if you're past puberty, you can't make any more. So that's where nature's punishing you.
2: Why, why not elastin. just take a handful of hormones? I mean we we supplement anti-aging hormones. I I know eighty year olds who have thirty year old hormone profiles. Any reason that like someone with cellulite couldn't just take a some prolactin or whatever the heck hormones they need to go back and just make new elastin? Do you think that's possible?
3: I don't believe it's possible because I okay. think it has to do with the fact that the, the DNA that makes this stuff is just like basically hidden, down regulated, and exposed because Biology does not want us to live longer. I mean, we're we are we've got a clock, and they, they that's why you have to hack we're, that. We're biology allowed a certain <laughs> amount of time, right? It's yes, exactly. So there's the challenge. It, it may okay. be possible, but I think it would be very difficult, and you'd have to have a lot of factors and do a lot of testing. But if it could be a fun, very fun hack.
2: What about stretch marks? I, I just wrote a book about everything I could find, including a lot of what you just talked about, because I'm covered in stretch marks from when I was. Uh, basically before 25 I used to weigh 300 pounds. So I have like zebra stripes all over like my hips and and like You know six inch scars along my abdomen and I've I've gotten they're all bleached and like they look reasonably decent But I realized I could have when I saw the first one I could have prevented it So I, I wrote a book with my wife. We put it on Amazon a couple days ago It's like a hundred pages of like everything you need to know to prevent stretch marks, but with what you're talking about, is there a hope of reversing them or at least preventing them? I, I know inflammation is an underlying factor there. Okay, yes. Prevention. So.
3: so this is, uh, so yeah, so, and, and and not creating more, right? So the other yeah. part of it, you know, nature make, punishes you for your past crimes, but moving forward, if you get your, your diet and your lifestyle in alignment with what nature had in mind for us, it won't continue to punish you. And, it, and you will be able to, you won't continue to degrade your elastin. Um, so that if you do have a little bit of cellulite, once you get your body fat down to a lower number, um, that cellulite will go away and you, and you won't get more, like you won't get more wrinkles. And unfortunately though, you know, the weaker your connective tissue is the lower you have to get your body fat percentage to have no cellulite anywhere. So it's kind of not fair, but to (laughs) your, um, (laughs) I have a little diagram, uh, about, scar tissue too. Um, so uh, this is this is from the sun, but, but stretch marks are, are kind of the same process. And what we're seeing is uh, normal skin that gets damaged from the sun, then the, uh, the cells that make new collagen in the skin lay down another layer, but it's disorganized. So that's why we can see stretch like little lines on stretch marks because it doesn't Mm -hmm. follow the same pattern. Um, And when it's laid down under inflammatory conditions, and in this case from a sunburn, it's quite inflammatory. um, It's, it's not going to follow the same pattern. And so that's one of the reasons that on a crummy diet, it's a lot easier to not only get the cellulite, but also the stretch marks.
2: Let's talk about sunlight for a little while. Uh, I've had uh, Dr. Stephanie Senef on uh, talking about sulfated cholesterol. How sunlight, ultraviolet light, when you expose your skin or even your eyes to it, it helps to make sulfated cholesterol and very importantly, sulfated vitamin D. So you supplement vitamin D, but it's not activated without ultraviolet exposure. Uh, yet we also uh, both know lots of people who like you know wear green visors and never allow the sun to hit their skin because they might get a wrinkle. Uh, it seems like these are opposite ends of the spectrum. What's your current recommendation for sunlight exposure? And does the type of fat you eat change your susceptibility to sunburn?
3: Okay, great question. So, yeah, so my current recommendation um, is kind of tied with that, right? Because the fact is that if you have these these vegetable oils, this liquid death um, – in your diet, to the degree that most Americans do, that stuff's going to be depot, it's stored in the fat under your skin. Right, right. And it's very susceptible to degradation. Um, one of the, the chemical term for that is oxidation, another term is free radical cascades. But the UV rays actually come in and strike the molecule and mm-hmm. fracture the molecule and spark off an oxidative reaction, which is essentially kind of a lot like fire in a forest, in a dry forest. Um, so the drier that forest, the more lightning is, is likely to start a fire. And, um, that fire is, uh, you know, the inflammation that you get after a sunburn and the redness. Um, so if your diet has been full of these pro inflammatory fats, you're very susceptible to get really bad red
2: burns and, and blistering. Yes. And then that, that, that deserves reiterating really quick for, for people listening. <laughs> If you're one of those people, I can't go out in the sunshine, and you're not a redhead, which means you have genetics from Ireland, and you need to live like somewhere dark. Uh, but other than that, <laughs> if, if you really do this, there's something wrong with your diet. You're not getting your polyphenols that modulate the light coming in, or you're eating way too much inflammatory fat. I went from being one of those I get red in fifteen minutes to mm. I can. I was in Hawaii. I put on sunscreen twice when I was going to be out on the water for two hours. The rest of the time, I just got a tan. Like that's what you're supposed to do.
3: Yes, absolutely. Because the inflammation can actually interfere with the tanning process. Um, there's a little bit of inflammation is is actually a trigger for the melanocytes, the cells that produce the melanin, mm-hmm. that dark pigment, which makes us nice and tan. Um, but if you have way too much inflammation, the melanocytes can't function properly either. And so they, they, they don't. And your, your body is busy trying to clean up with that inflammatory mess, put out that fire, and it doesn't really ever get the chance to, uh, to tan properly. And so, um, absolutely. That's a, that's a great point. And now, so to your prior question of how long does it take to get the, you know, like a new type of fat under your skin? Um, it, it it's it's not something that's going to happen like if you're planning a Hawaiian vacation in a month. Um,
0: <laughs>
3: it's not going to fully happen in that month, but you can make a lot of inroads be, uh, because the just taking away the um, vegetable oils from your diet and having a lot of fresh veggies is going to enable your body to be able to put out the fires a lot quicker. You're still going to be more prone to forest fires, but with more antioxidants in the system now. Um, that you can have once you get the vegetable oils out because the vegetable oils gobble up your antioxidants. Uh, at least now you can put out those forest fires quicker. So you will definitely get a benefit and you'll get greater benefit the longer you stay on this kind of diet, the, the vegetable oil free diet. So we, we have an entire chapter in our book called Deep Nutrition called Brain Killer, um, Why Vegetable Oil is Your Brain's Worst Enemy. And we go over seven, Six or seven strategies as to how exactly uh, having a high vegetable oil diet promotes brain problems and including, uh, I mean, you you name it, brain problem, whether it's a stroke, whether it's a migraine, bipolar disorder, Alzheimer's disease, or just brain fog. Because, yeah, every single one. So getting these vegetable oils out of your diet and out of your brain just is so for me, it is the single most important thing that anyone can do to improve their health. Because if your brain isn't working right, you're not ready to tackle. It's going to be that much harder to tackle new habits and a new diet. But
2: I've gone out with various people who really ought to know better. Uh, you know, nutrition experts, uh, fitness experts, uh, uh, sometimes people who work for Bulletproof. And I don't, I don't judge what other people choose. Like it's your body, your biochemistry. You can do whatever you want. Uh, but I do notice because I'm always like asking myself why. And they'll sit down and they'll say, I want the fried calamari or the tempura or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think to myself, I've had maybe two grams in the entire year of vegetable oil because restaurants use vegetable oil spray like the aerosol PAM stuff and they don't tell me about it. Otherwise, I don't allow that into my body. What happens if someone eats like a deep fried food one time full of these, these vegetable oils, what does it do to their brain?
3: So researchers in Australia asked a very similar question um, in 2006. And they published their findings in the American Journal of Cardiology, which is a very prestigious magazine. They, they looked at what happened when you took a, a serving of French fries from a restaurant, a standard restaurant, towards the end of the week because that oh. oil is used over and over again. And so you don't know, you know when you get there how old it is and it's, you know, a requ- requirement they're recommended to change it, you know, once a week, but they don't always do that. Right. Yeah. Some may change it more often, of course, and they deserve credit for that. But, um, but so one serving of fries, a single serving and um, healthy young volunteers around their twenties, um, they measured what happens to a physiologic process called endothelial function, which helps regulate Mm -hmm. your blood flow. And as we get older, we lose endothelial function. It, right. This loss of function is, uh, very important to normal sexual function also, right? So that's why we associate poorer sexual function with aging because it depends entirely, very hugely on, on, um, this, um, Hugely, what a good use of that word! <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was just gonna say, I'm glad we're talking because I'm feeling good about myself right now. I'm just. <laughs> uh,
3: but it, it very much depends on endoth- the endothelial function to dilate those arteries, right, and and um, get your hugely on. <laughs> so, well said. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the French fries, one serving, um, reduced their endothelial function. For up to 24 hours, okay and it how much did it reduce it? it obliterated it yeah. so that there was no endothelial function anymore that um, you did not dilate at all in response to the normal um, triggers for for dilation and um, and it lasted for about 24 hours and so effectively what it shows is that this one serving of fries ages your arteries to the point where you're you know an unhealthy 80 year old for up to 24 hours, and you do that day after day, and you're walking around with the arteries of an 80-year-old, and it definitely imp- impacts cognitive function for reasons we can oh, go yeah. into,
2: if you're interested. Uh, we'll definitely go into those. Uh, I, I've gotta say, eating restaurant fried food is one of the dumbest things you can do. It is, I'll Look. go on a limb here, it's probably worse than smoking. Like, if I had a choice between smoking a cigarette every day and eating fried food from restaurants every day, I would smoke the cigarette because at least nicotine has some benefits.
3: I 100% agree, (laughs) and I've actually looked into the research. So,
2: Oh, do tell. This is awesome. Of course you looked into it, Kate. That's why you're awesome. All right.
3: Because they've tested endothelial function with cigarette smoking as well. And Mm -hmm. so a cigarette uh, impairs endothelial function for up to four hours. A pack of french fries for up to 24 so it's worse okay so it has more ability to imperium and, and this was like a um uh, a modern fairly uh tame cigarette right um i i forget the brand but it wasn't like a marlboro it, it was it was like okay. a, a low nicotine low tar
2: no, no um, nails.
3: Right? <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so um so absolutely it's it is a worse choice to have a a, a a a a pack of fries than to have a cigarette and and this is something to keep in mind for sure if you're pregnant. But the other oh, thing Oh god, yeah. <laughs> and and the other thing that happens is the cigarette only affects your lungs and your arteries and um it doesn't become what your body is built out of. Yeah. So after the fries are through quenching your nitric oxide and destroying your endo- This, that's how they destroy endothelial function. Then they get incorporated into some part of your body and, and they continue to promote oxidative stress and free radical cascades from there. And they can do even more damage. And they become actually, once they're fully broken down, uh, they become substances uh, I'll just give you, uh, two names just to show that I'm not making this up. 4-hydroxy and 4-hydroxy These two substances are derived yep. from the dra- breakdown products of vegetable oils that you get when you're French, you're, you eat your french fries. And they are known genotoxins. Genotoxins, meaning they will mutate your genes. And so we have a, um, little section in deep nutrition where we talk about if you're a dad, OK, and you are you want to be a dad, I should say, you're not dad yet. Uh, you walk into McDonald's, you have your fries, you get all this genotoxic stuff. It goes to your gonads. It affects how they are right. able to replicate that DNA, how accurately or inaccurately you are effectively walking out of that restaurant with older uh, cajones than you walked in with.
2: What would you rather see? A dad three months before pregnancy eating fried food every day, or having a glass of wine every day?
3: Far and away, the glass of wine.
2: Because okay. are you guys getting just for? <laughs> are you guys getting this? Like, don't eat fried crap, and that includes fried Brussels sprouts at your paleo restaurant. If it's fried at a restaurant, you don't put it in your mouth.
3: <laughs> I, I just love that you're emphasizing that because, you know, I I, I almost feel like there's something where oh it doesn't count because i don't do it very often or it's just a treat <laughs> or something like that and it, and it's just a it, it's it's a little bit of magical thinking there like it, you know it, uh-huh. well i didn't make it or you know i i didn't get to see it i don't know what's happening back there in the mysterious yeah. kitchen and and i i really think it's magical thinking and and i uh, the only way to combat magical thinking is with facts <laughs> yeah
2: Well, there's another thing we should talk about, just in the interest of giving people actionable information. When you go to the restaurant, like, I'm going to be a good person, I'll order the salad with olive oil instead of your MSG bad fat dressing. Most restaurants today use a blend of 75% olive, 25% canola, and the waitress doesn't even know it. And if you say, could you check because I have an anaphylactic response to canola oil, you'll be surprised at how often they come back and go, oh, you can't eat the olive oil. And it's to the point like I carry brain octane in a little bottle and I pour that and some lemon on my salad when I go out if they don't have real olive oil because, well, they're doing that. And they do it because they save money. They can cook with olive oil that has a higher smoke point because it's adulterated with toxic canola oil. and So this matters more than a lot of the other things you do. Like, okay, now I'm going to ask you a really hard question. If someone could... Uh, exercise regularly. Uh, let's say someone could exercise five days a week, uh, moderate exercise, not like killing themselves every day. Um, they could either do that or they could not eat fried foods every day. Which do you think would be a better choice?
3: I still say not eat the fried foods because... <laughs> I do <too>. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Because if you're exercising while you're eating fried foods, it's a little bit like, you know, while you're exercising, you're trying to uh, improve your lung health while you're exercising, while you're smoking, right? It's not going to happen. You're not going to improve your cardiovascular health the way that you think you are. So if you have, you know, a certain amount of willpower, a certain amount of one thing that you want to do, and you have to choose between starting an exercise program and cutting vegetable oil out of your diet, I would start with the cutting the vegetable oil out of the diet because it will ultimately make you smarter and improve your willpower. It, the, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's something called executive function, and um, we cite a study in deep nutrition that shows that the consumption of vegetable oils reduces your executive function. It, it, executive function is your planning ability. Oh yeah. So that, like, uh, one of the big things, the big barriers to weight loss, is that uh, folks have certain habits around their diet, and uh, sometimes it's like going home, and on, on your way home, you. Go stop through a drive-through because you feel a little bit hungry, um, and if your executive function is not, uh, if your executive is on vacation and not doing his function, uh, you will not really be able to plan a healthier yeah. way home or a healthier meal. And so, it, you know, when you're eating something that interferes with your executive function, it makes it all the harder to adopt any other healthy habit. And and it's kind of like you take two steps forward and one step back or one and three quarters step back. And I hear that so much from people who are trying to lose weight. And I, I really believe that this is why you, you want to triage and, you know, attack the most important thing first, <laughs> because everything else falls. If you attack the a, a most important thing, that means everything else is going to be easier to attack next.
2: It, you totally have like cracked the code on this. And it, it's almost like you're a psychic here. the, When you offer a a talk to physicians, they get continuing education credits. But you have to tell the physicians what you're you're going to, uh, what they're going to learn in your talk. So this talk I'm giving at the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, the first learning point for them is uh, how to hack patient compliance. I love it. And basically, you cut vegetable oils, and you cut things that decrease mitochondrial function, and suddenly you get patients who have enough energy and willpower to do what you tell them, instead of the average patient who's like, I know, Doc, you told me to do this, but I was too tired, so I just you know, did what I was going to do. And that frustrates everyone everywhere, including the patient, including the physician. So what you just said is is classical there. And I am of the same opinion that drinking, smoking, and not exercising are actually lesser sins than eating fried vegetable oil stuff. Or just eating vegetable oil, but very specifically fried vegetable oil.
3: I'm glad you're taking this on because it is something that has been confused in the literature and just basically almost like glossed over. And um and you know it, it needs a champion.
2: And you cover this in in deep nutrition, which is really cool, and that's why I I would encourage you if you're listening to this and this is a fun interview for you, or you just need the inspiration, or you want the arguments, uh, so that when your your fat family members with lots of cellulite tell you why oh just a little bit of canola oil is just fine, uh, if you want the data and you want to understand it, deep nutrition is a book that's that's worth reading for that. Thanks, Dave. Now. No, it, it's, really, it, it's really the case. And, and now I, I feel like we could talk for another hour, but we're up on the end of the show. So I want to ask you the final question uh, from Bulletproof Radio uh, that I've asked all guests except that one guy. <laughs>
3: which is if, what, was it the if, Walmart uh, smiley face guy
2: that you had on? <laughs> exactly. I, I, there was one guest I where I'm like, oh, no, I forgot. Uh, Yeah, actually, maybe I should just ask everyone I meet. Anyhow, (laughs) long-time listeners will know what I'm about to ask. But if someone came to you tomorrow, Dr. Kate, and they're like, look, I want to perform better at everything I do. Like, I want to kick ass at life, not just at one thing. Maybe I'm an athlete, maybe I'm not. It doesn't really matter. But the three most important pieces of advice you have for someone so they can perform better at every single thing they do, what would you tell them?
3: Okay, first one is breakfast is the most important meal of the day not to screw up. And we do screw (laughs) it up by starting out with carbohydrates and very often vegetable oils. Um, And if you start your day with that stuff, you're, you know, the carbohydrates can put you on a energy high and low. And uh, that's a whole other podcast. Um, And so (laughs) and the second one is going to be. um, So the next meal, if you don't have time for a healthy lunch, you don't have to eat lunch. And if you started your day right, you won't, you'll be fine without it. Now, maybe not the first day that you do that, but your body gets better and better at um, accessing stored fat, converting the fat to ketones for your brain to use. Um, And then uh, number three is just make it easy. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want in our book, we talk about a lot of things that are that could be very difficult to tackle all at once uh you know getting pastured animal products and learning new recipes and stuff like this but start with one thing that's easy and make it something that you enjoy and whether it's even just exercising right so um i actually worked with meta world peace's mother uh several years ago and her big she was very overweight and um he was very worried about her health and her her big thing was soda and she didn't exercise and and I said, you know what, you're such a social person. Why don't you exercise with somebody? And I was thinking of her, you know, get a friend. But she actually took that in a different way and got a, a trainer. And she's lost 120 pounds. Wow. And that was four years ago. So she's kept it off. So just make it fun. You know, find, you know, something that makes it easy for you. And then that makes it a lot funner.
2: That is really cool. Love that advice. Thanks, Dr. Kate. People can pick up your book where books are sold online or offline. It's called Correct. Deep Nutrition. And where can they find out more about uh, your clinic and uh, the, the work that you do?
3: From drkate.com, my website, which is drcate.com.
2: Awesome. If you guys didn't get that, that's drcate.com. And it's it's my pleasure to be able to have conversations like this uh, with uh, people like Dr. Kate, because uh, there's so much actionable information out there. You can you can read her book and get more. Uh, but if you just walked away with a, a couple things from this, look, eating bad fats is really bad for you. It's way worse for you than most people will say. And Dr. Kate's done a lot of really good research about this. And I think is one of the leading experts talking about this. You've also heard from people like Dr. Barry Sears on the show who discovered eicosanoids, which are one of the things that the omega-6 fats turn into. So this is an ongoing theme for the show. But if the next time you sit down at a restaurant, don't order the salad dressing, don't order the fried stuff. And if you make that your default behavior, you'll actually maybe get more benefit than something that takes a lot more effort. And that's a really big learning from today's episode. Dr. Kate, thanks again for being on the show.
3: It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Dave.
2: You're so welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode, you know what to do. Head on over to Bulletproof.com and get a subscription for Bulletproof coffee beans and some of that brain octane oil, which, by the way, will not mess up your cell membranes in any way, shape, or form. Very stable, gives energy, raises ketones, and probably, well, gives you wings or something like that, but no guarantees there. (laughs) Have an awesome day.